0: Chapter Ten of Flower of the North. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Flower of the North by James Oliver Curwood, Chapter Ten. Soon Philip slackened his pace and looked anxiously ahead of him. From where he stood, the cliff sloped down to a white strip of beach that reached out into the night as far as he could see hemmed close in by the black gloom of the forest. Halfway down the slope, the moonlight was cut by a dark streak, and he found this to be the second break. He had no difficulty in descending. Its sides were smooth, as though worn by water. At the bottom, white, dry sand slipped under his feet. He made his way between the walls, and darkness shut him in. The trail grew rougher. Near the shore he stumbled blindly among huge rocks and piles of crumbling slate, wondering why Jeanne and Pierre had come this way when they might have taken a smoother road. Close to the stony beach, where the light was a little better, he made out the canoe which Pierre had drawn into the shadows. Not until he had dragged it into the moonlight at the edge of the water did he see that it was equipped as if for a long journey. Close to the stern was a bulging pack, with a rifle strapped across it. Two or three smaller caribou-skin bags lay in the center of the canoe. In the bow was a thick nest of bearskin, and he knew that this was for Jeanne. Cautiously Philip launched himself, and with silent sweeps of the paddle that made scarcely the sound of a ripple in the water, set out in the direction of Churchill. Jeanne's captors had a considerable start of him, but he felt confident of his ability to overtake them shortly, if Pierre had spoken with truth when he said that they would head for the Churchill River. He had observed the caution with which Pierre's assailants had approached the cliff, and he was sure that they would double that caution in their return, especially as their attack had been interrupted at the last moment. For this reason he paddled without great haste, keeping well within the concealment of the precipitous shore, with his ears and eyes keenly alive to discover a sign of those who were ahead of him. Opposite the rock where Pierre and Jeanne were to have met him, he stopped and stood up in the canoe. The wind had dispelled the smoke shadow. Between him and the distant ship lay an unclouded sea. Two-thirds of the distance to the vessel he made out the larger canoe, rising and falling with the smooth undulations of the tide. He sank upon his knees again and unstrapped Pierre's rifle. There was a cartridge in the chamber. He made sure that the magazine was loaded and resumed his paddling. His mind worked rapidly. Within half an hour, if he desired, he could overtake the other canoe. And what then? There were three to one if it came to a fight. And how could he rescue Jeanne without a fight? His blood was pounding eagerly, almost with pleasure at the promise of what was ahead of him, and he laughed softly to himself as he thought of the odds. The ship loomed nearer, the canoe vanished behind it. A brief stop, a dozen words of explanation, and Philip knew that he could secure assistance from the vessel. After all, would that not be the wisest course for him to pursue? for a moment he hesitated and paddled more slowly if others joined with him in the rescue of jeanne what excuse could he offer for not bringing her back to churchill what would happen if he returned with her why had pierre roused himself from something that was almost death to entreat him to take jeanne to fort o god at the thought of fort a god a new strength leaped into his arms and body urging him on to cope with the situation single-handed. If he rescued Jeanne alone and went on with her as he had promised Pierre, many things that were puzzling him would be explained. It occurred to him again that Jeanne and Pierre might be the key to the mysterious plot that promised to crash out the life of the enterprise he had founded in the North. He found reasons for this belief. Why had Lord Fitzhugh's name had such a startling effect upon Pierre? Why was one of his assailants a man fresh from the London ship that had borne Eileen Brokaw and her father as passengers? He felt that Jeanne could explain these things, as well as her brother. She could explain the strange scene on the pier when, for a moment, she had stood crushed and startled before Eileen. She could clear up the mystery of Gregson's sketch for if there were two Eileen Brokaw's, Jeanne would know. With these arguments, he convinced himself that he should go on alone. Yet, behind them, there was another and more powerful motive. He confessed to himself that he would willingly accept double the chances against him to achieve Jeanne's rescue without assistance and to accompany her to fort-de-god The thought of their being together, of the girl's companionship, perhaps for days, thrilled him with exquisite anticipation. An hour or so ago he had been satisfied in the assurance that he would see her for a few minutes on the cliff. Since then fate had played his way. Jeanne was his own, to save, to defend, to carry on to fort god Not for a moment did he hesitate at the danger ahead of him, and yet his pursuit was filled with caution. Gregson, the diplomat, would have seen the necessity of halting at the ship for help. Philip was confident in himself. He knew that he would have at least three against him, for he was satisfied that the man whom he had wounded on the cliff was still in fighting trim. There might be others whom he had not taken into account. He passed so close under the stern of the ship that his canoe scraped against her side. For a few minutes the vessel had obstructed his view, but now he saw again, a quarter of a mile distant, the craft which he was pursuing. Jeanne's captors were heading straight for the river, and as the canoe was now partly broadside to him he could easily make out the figures in her, but not distinctly enough to make sure of their number. He shoved out boldly into the moonlight, and instead of following in his former course, he turned at a sharp angle in the direction of the shore. If the others saw him, which was probable, they would think that he was making a landing from the ship. Once he was in the deep fringe of shadow along the shore, he could redouble his exertions and draw nearer to them without being observed. No sooner had he readied the sheltering bloom than he bent to his paddle and the light birch bark fairly hissed through the water. Not until he found himself abreast of the pursued did it occur to him that he could beat them out to the mouth of the Churchill and lie in wait for them. Every stroke of his paddle widened the distance between him and the larger canoe. Fifteen minutes later he reached the edge of the huge delta of wild rice and reeds through which the sluggish volume of the river emptied into the bay. The chances were that the approaching canoe would take the nearest channel into the main stream, and Philip concealed himself so that it would have to pass within twenty yards of him. From his ambuscade he looked out upon the approaching canoe. He was puzzled by the slowness of its progress. At times it seemed to stand still, and he could distinguish no movement at all among its occupants. At first he thought they were undecided as to which course to pursue but a few minutes more sufficed to show that this was not the reason for their desultory advance. The canoe was headed for the first channel. The solution came when a low but clear whistle signaled over the water. Almost instantly there came a responsive whistle from up the channel. Philip drew a quick breath, and a new sensation brought his teeth together in sudden perplexity It looked as though he had a bigger fight before him than he had anticipated. At the signal from upstream, he heard the quick dip of paddles, and the canoe cut swiftly toward him. He drew back the hammer of Pierre's rule, and cleared a little space through the reeds and grass so that his view into the channel was unobstructed. Three or four well-directed shots, a quick dash out into the stream, and he would possess Jeanne. This was his first thought. It was followed by others, rapid as lightning, that restrained his eagerness. The night glow was treacherous to shoot by. What if he should miss, or hit Jean, or in the sudden commotion and destruction of his shots the canoe should be overturned? A single error, the slightest mishap to himself, would mean the annihilation of his hopes. Even if he succeeded in directing his shots with accuracy, both himself and Jeanne would almost immediately be under fire from those above. He dropped back again behind the screen of reeds. The canoe drew nearer. A moment more, and it was almost abreast of him, and his heart pounded like a swiftly beating hammer when he saw Jeanne in the stern. She was leaning back as though unconscious, He could see nothing of her face, but as the canoe passed within ten yards of his hiding place he saw the dark glow of her disheveled hair, which fell thickly over the object against which she was resting. It was but a moment's view, and they were gone. He had not looked at the three men in the canoe. His whole being was centered upon Jeanne. He had seen no sign of life, no movement in her body not the flutter of a hand, and all his fears leaped like brands of burning fire into his brain. He thought of the inhuman plot which Lord Fitzhugh's letter had revealed. In the same breath, Pierre Couchet's words rang in his ears. It is death, worse than death, for her. Was Jeanne the first victim of that diabolical scheme to awaken the wrath of the Northland, In the madness which possessed him now, Philip shoved out his canoe while there was still danger of discovery. Fortunately, none of the pursued glanced back, and a turn in the channel soon hid them from view. Philip had recovered his self-possession by the time he reached the turn. He assured himself that Jeanne was unharmed as yet, and that when he saw her she had probably fainted from excitement and terror her fate still lay before her somewhere in the deep and undisturbed forest up the churchill his one hope was to remain undiscovered and to rescue her at the last moment when she was taken ashore by her captors he followed close up against the reeds never trusting himself out of the shadows after a little he heard voices and a second canoe appeared there was a short pause and the two canoes continued side by side up the channel. A quarter of an hour brought both the pursuers and the pursued into the main stream, which lay in black gloom between forest walls that cut out all light but the shimmer of the stars. No longer could Philip see those ahead of him, but he guided himself by occasional voices and the dip of paddles. At times, when the stream narrowed and the forest walls gave him deeper shelter, he drew perilously near with the hope of overhearing what was said, but he caught only an occasional word or two. He listened in vain for Jeanne's voice. Once he heard her name spoken, and it was followed by a low laugh from someone in the canoe that had waited at the mouth of the Churchill. A dozen times during the first half-hour after they entered the main stream, Philip heard this same laughing voice. After a time there fell a silence upon those ahead. No sound rose above the steady dip of paddles, and the speed of the two canoes increased. Suddenly, from far up the river, there came a voice, faintly at first, but growing steadily louder. "'singing one of the wild half-breed songs of the forest. "'The voice broke the silence of those in the canoes. "'They ceased paddling, and Philip stopped. "'He heard low words, and after a few moments, "'the paddling was resumed and the canoes turned in toward the shore. "'Philip followed their movement, "'dropping fifty yards farther down the stream.' and thrust big birch-bark alongside a thick balsam that had fallen into the river. The singing voice approached rapidly. Five minutes later, a long company canoe floated down out of the gloom. It passed so near that Philip could see the picturesque figure in the stern, paddling and singing. In the bow kneeled an Indian working in stoic silence. Between them, in the body of the canoe, sat two men whom he knew at a glance were white men. The strangers and their craft slipped by with the quickness of a shadow. Again Philip heard movements above him, and once more he took up the pursuit. He wondered why Jeanne had not called for help when the company canoe passed. If she was not hurt or unconscious, Her captors had been forced to hold a handkerchief or a brutal hand over her mouth, perhaps at her throat. His blood grew hot with rage at the thought. For three-quarters of an hour longer, the swift paddling upstream continued without interruption. Then the river widened into a small lake, and Philip was compelled to hold back until the two canoes, which he could see clearly now, had passed over the exposed area. By the time he dared to follow, Jeanne's captors were a quarter of a mile ahead of him. He no longer heard their paddles when he entered the stream at the upper end of the lake, and he bent to his work with greater energy and less caution. Five minutes, ten minutes passed, and he saw nothing, heard nothing. His strokes grew more powerful and the canoe shot through the water with the swift cleavage of a knife. A perspiration began to gather on his face, and a sudden chilling fear entered him. Another five minutes and he stopped. The river swept out ahead of him, broad and clear, for a quarter of a mile. There was no sign of the canoes. For a few moments he remained motionless, drifting back with the slow current of the stream. "'stunned by the thought that he had allowed Jeanne's captors to escape him. "'Had they heard him and dropped in to shore to let him pass? "'He swung his canoe about and headed downstream. "'In that case he could not miss them, if he used caution. "'But if they had turned into some creek hidden in the gloom, "'were even now picking their way through a secret channel that led back from the river— A groan burst from his lips as he thought of Jeanne. In that half-mile of river he could surely find where the canoes had gone, but it might be too late. He went down in midstream, searching the shadows of both shores. His heart sank like lead when he came to the lake. There was but one thing to do now, and he ran his canoe close along the right-hand shore, looking for an opening his progress was slow a dozen times he entangled himself in masses of reeds and rice or thrust himself under overhanging treetops and vines to investigate the deeper gloom beyond he had returned two-thirds of the distance to the straight water where he had given up the pursuit when the bow of his canoe ran upon a smooth sandy bar that shelved out thirty or forty feet from the shore Scarcely had he felt the grate of sand when with a powerful shove he sent his canoe back and almost in the same instant Pierre's rifle leveled menacingly shoreward. Drawn up high and dry on the sandbar were the two canoes. For a space Philip expected that his appearance would be the signal for some movement ashore. But as he drifted slowly away, his rifle still leveled, he was filled more and more with the belief that he had not been discovered. He allowed himself to drift until he knew that he was hidden in the shadows, and then quietly worked himself in to shore. Making no sound, he pulled himself up the bank and crept along the trees toward the bar. There was no one guarding the canoes. He heard no sound of voice, no crackling of brush or movement of reeds. For a full minute he crouched and listened. Then he crept nearer and found where both reeds and brush were trampled down into a path that led away from the river. His heart gave a bound of joy, and he darted along the path, holding his rifle ready for instant use. The trail wound through the tall grass of a dry swamp meadow, and two hundred yards beyond the river plunged into a forest. He had barely entered this when he saw the glow of a fire. It was only a short distance ahead, hidden in a deep hollow that completely concealed its existence from the keenest eyes that might pass along the river. Stealing cautiously to the crest of the little knoll between him and the light, Philip found himself within fifty feet of a camp. A big canvas tent was the first thing to come within his vision. The fire was built against this face of a rock in front of this, and over the fire hovered a man dragging out beds of coals with a forked stick. Almost at the same moment a second man appeared from the tent, bearing two huge skillets in one hand and a big pot in the other. At a glance Philip knew that they were preparing to cook a meal, and that it was for many instead of two. Wildly he searched the firelit spaces and the shadows for a sign of Jeanne. He saw nothing. She was not in the camp. The five or six men who had fled up the river with her were not there. His fingers dug deep in the earth under him at the discovery, and once more appalling fears overwhelmed him. Perhaps she had already met her fate a little deeper in the forest. He crept over the edge of the knoll and worked himself down through the low bush on the opposite side, which would bring him within a dozen feet of the man over the fire. There he would have them at his mercy, and at the point of his revolver would compel them to tell him where Jeanne had been taken. The advantage was all in his favor. It would not be difficult to make them prisoners and leave them secured while he followed after their companions. He was intent only upon his plan and did not take his eyes from the men over the fire. He came to the end of the bush and crouched with head and shoulders exposed, his revolver in his hand. Suddenly a sound close to the tent startled him. It was a low cough. The men over the fire made no movement to look behind them, but Philip turned. In the shadow of a tree, which had concealed her until now, sat Jean. She was tense and straight. Her white face was turned to him. Her beautiful eyes glowed like stars. Her lips were parted. He could see her quick, excited breathing. She saw him. She knew him. He could see the joy of hope in her face, and that she was crushing back an impulse to cry out to him even as he was restraining his own mad desire to shout out his defiance and joy. And there in the firelight, his face illumined and oblivious for the moment of the presence of the two men, Philip straightened himself and held out his arms with a glad smile to Jeanne. Hardly had he turned to the men ready to spring out upon them when there came a terrific interruption there was a sudden crash in the brush behind him a menacing snarl and a huge wolfish brute launched itself at his throat the swift instinct of self-preservation turned the weapon intended for the men over the fire upon this unexpected assailant the snarling fangs of the husky were gleaming in his face and the animal's body was against the muzzle of his revolver when philip fired Though he escaped the fangs, he could not ward off the impact of the dog's body, and in another moment he was sprawling upon his back in the light of the camp. Before Philip could recover himself, Jeanne's startled guards were upon him. Flung back, he still possessed his pistol and pulled the trigger blindly. The report was muffled and sickening. At the same moment a heavy blow fell upon his head and a furious weight crushed him back to the ground. He dropped his revolver. His brain reeled, his muscles relaxed. He felt his assailant's fingers at his throat, and their menace brought back every ounce of fighting strength in his body. For a moment he lay still, his eyes closed, the warm blood flowing over his face. He had worked this game once before, years ago. He even thought of that time now, as he lay upon his back. It had worked then, and it worked now. The choking fingers at his throat loosened. The weight lifted itself a little from his chest. The lone guard thought that he was unconscious, and Jeanne, who had staggered to her feet, thought that he was dead. It was her cry, terrible filled with agony and despair that urged him into action an instant too soon. His foe was still partly on his guard, rising with a caution born of more than one wilderness episode, when with a quick movement Philip closed with him. Locked in a deadly grip, they rolled upon the ground, and with a feeling of despair which had never entered into his soul before, the terrible truth came to Philip, that the old strength was gone from his arms, and that with each added exertion he was growing weaker. For a moment he saw Jeanne. She stood almost above them, her hands clutched at her breast. And as he looked, she suddenly turned and ran to the fire. An instant more and she was back, a red-hot brand in her hand. Philip saw it flash close to his eyes, felt the heat of it, and then a scream, animal-like in its ferocity and pain, burst from the lips of his antagonist. The man reeled backward, clutching at his thick neck, where Jeanne had thrust the burning stick. Philip rose to his knees. His fist shot out like lightning against the other's jaw, and the second guard fell back in a limp heap. Even as the blow fell, a loud shout came from close back in the forest, followed by the crashing of many feet tearing through the underbrush. End of chapter 10 Recording by Roger Moline